Now this week, we begin chapter 2 in our study of Mark. We're entering a new phase in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. This section begins a series of events, or this this chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 kind of focuses on a series of events where Jesus is at odds with the scribes and other religious leaders. Now, the specific section we're going to look at is going to be fairly well known to us that have grown up in the church. But we tend to remember the drama of other things in the, in the account, in this passage, and forget something, some things. Like I said, this is, this is surrounded with drama of another miraculous hearing. But sometimes we forget that this section also focuses on Jesus's identity and his authority. So let's get into our passage and see what happens. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that we are back in Capernaum. Back in Capernaum. Mark tells us straight away here that Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Well, Matthew's account just says he, he was in his own city. He doesn't name it. Matthew's account is very um, basic. Four or five verses, hitting the highlights, and move, moves on. Um, Mark and Luke spend a little bit more time around the account and what we see here. We don't have much of a time frame here. It just says sometime later. So this is mostly like, most likely, excuse me, sometime after he left Capernaum, as recorded back in Mark 1, verses 38 and 39. He left to go to other cities and to preach the word there, to present the gospel there. Um, so we have kind of an indefinite time frame. We don't know how long Jesus and his ragamuffin band were on tour through Galilee, But at some point here, they've returned to Capernaum. Now, the indication may be here that they were gone enough that some of the excitement of of when Jesus was last there has died down. Because we see he was able to enter the city unnoticed. We look back at verse um, 45. It says that Jesus was no no longer openly to enter the city. He could no longer openly enter a city. So he had to stay in the outside places. Because anytime he would have just come into a city normally, he would have been, uh, he would have brought in a mass of crowds and would have been unable to work and minister within the city. So he had to stay in the outskirts places. But here, he's able to return to Capernaum, apparently unnoticed. There wasn't uh, a lot of hubbub about him returning. However, somehow word got around that Jesus was back. And that enthusiasm returned, and the crowd amassed at the house that Jesus was at. Now, we don't have really any details of the house Jesus was in. The King James and New King James has that Jesus was in the house. 
However, in, in the original language, there's no article. It doesn't say the house. He, it's, he was in house. Um, we, would, we would say he was in a house. The idea of the phrase may be more like Jesus is at home. Now, there are a few ideas. Some try and say that this was Jesus's home, that he lived in Capernaum with, at least with Mary, his mother. Um, but we don't know that for sure. That's speculation. And like that, we, we can only speculate that this may be Peter and Andrew's home, that that may have been their base. This may be James and John, John's house. This may be their, his fa- their father's house, Zebedee's house. We don't know. It's speculation. We don't have specific enough information. It doesn't matter. He was back in his home city, and word got around, and the people knew where he was or what house he was in to, to get to him. And we see that so many people gathered at the house and inside the house that no one else could get inside. You talk about a packed house. So many people, it says so many people were, were gathered that you couldn't even get close to the door. So we have to, we may need to understand that this house is maybe a fairly modest home, uh, maybe somewhat small. Some houses or complexes had a little bit kind of an outer courtyard where they could do some things. It appears here that the door opened directly onto the street and they didn't have that. Now, we see in Luke's account of this passage that he says that there are several Pharisees and teachers of the law have come to hear Jesus as well. And these weren't just from Galilee or just from Capernaum. He says that they came from all around Galilee. They came from Judea and they came specifically from Jerusalem. And we see that touched on in Mark later uh, in verse six. Mark account says that there were scribes in attendance. We'll touch on that a little bit later, but there, there was a mix of crowd. This wasn't just, just the common people coming to hear him. Um, but we have the scholars and the Pharisees and the teachers coming to hear him as well. Jesus took the opportunity. He didn't waste the opportunity. He took it to speak and teach to the people. Now in the King James, New King James, and even the ESV says we have the word preach. And he preached the word to them. We don't actually have the word preach. We have the word speak. Now, while preaching or teaching may be the idea, that's not the word that's penned. It seems that using this word is trying to indicate a little bit more of a conversational tone, a little bit not so much preaching on the street soapbox preaching, but a little bit more uh, conversational teaching and instruction. Maybe he was having, we don't know, uh, this is a guess here, but he may have been having a little bit more conversational discussion with just the teachers and the Pharisees, uh, and the people were just gathered around to listen. But he took the opportunity to continue his teaching. He was speaking the word, and the word here is likely referring to the gospel message that he was going around Galilee with, going around Galilee with, that is referenced back in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, Luke's account also indicates that Jesus was doing some healing. Um, And maybe as we get a little bit further in here, maybe that time had kind of come to an end and he was a little bit more invested in the teaching. 
But Mark doesn't bring that up. He wants to focus on some of these bigger issues. So, so far in these couple of verses, all in all, what seem, we see what seems to be a typical day of ministry surrounding Jesus. But something else is about to happen. And we pick up in verse three. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. So in verses three to five, we see the paralytic and faith. The paralytic and faith. We get the idea that this was happening while Jesus was teaching. These four men brought a paralytic. We assume them to be the friends of this man. We don't know what happened to cause the paralysis of this man. Um, and, and it seems that his legs were the ones that, were, that was paralyzed. If he was having to be carried in like this. But when these men couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd, for whatever reason, maybe they were able to, to kind of work their way through the crowd, maybe getting closer to the door, maybe because the Pharisees were there, they got barred at the door. Maybe someone said, no, Jesus has done healing for the day. But someone, one of, maybe one of the four or someone else, maybe thought outside the box a little bit. And they took a different approach. One writer calls it a sanctified ingenuity. This kind of creative thinking is sought by a few pastors I know, and they use the phrase, think outside the box, but inside the Bible. Think outside the box, but inside the Bible. The idea is to think creatively for ministry, for service, for outreach. The only box that we are confined to is the Bible, is what we're doing against Scripture or not. But these men, thinking creatively, went outside the box and carried the man to the roof. They figured, all right, we can't get through the door, let's go through the roof. Now, what we need to understand is houses at the time, especially the more modest homes of the, we'll call them less than wealthy, um, to use a little more popular phrase, the, 99, the 99%. Um, these houses had flat roofs that had access from an exterior uh, staircase, or maybe if it was an adjoining houses, um, if this house didn't have a staircase, the other one did, and it was accessible. So these men took the paralytic up to the roof, and they broke through the roof. Literally, it is having dug out the roof. Now, in Luke's account, he refers to that there's tiling on the roof. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it's a different kind of roof. Roofs at that time generally were made with wood beams running across wall to wall, about three feet apart, with small sticks that were set closely together laying across those beams. And sometimes those, that then was then covered uh, with a thatch of grain, twigs, straw, and some mud. Generally after that, tiles of sun-baked clay were laid on top of that, which would then in turn be covered with a layer of clay and rolled hard. 
So this probably wasn't necessarily an easy task, but it doesn't seem that it would have been overly destructive. They probably knew roughly where and how they needed to take things apart. Actually, one of the phrases in here, and they broke through or they uncovered the roof, literally that says they unroofed the roof. <laughs> so they, they, they kind of knew what, they knew what they were doing and how to work with this roof. So not necessarily an easy task, but I don't think it was overly destructive either. I think they knew how and what, what they needed to do. Now, the question that came to my mind, well, did Jesus keep teaching? If he kept teaching, did the audience keep listening? We don't know. <laughs> we figured at some point this would have been, this would have become disruptive and distracted from Jesus' teaching. We really don't know any further details of the process or what the crowds or Jesus' reaction really was to, to what was going on. Whether he stopped and, and they just sat and watched, waiting for them to break through or see what would happen, or, or if everyone just continued on. Finally, the men break through the, break through the roof and lower the paralytic down near Jesus. They let him down on his bed. Now, this was likely a poor man's bed. Don't think of, don't think of a twin bed or anything like that. This was a poor man's bed, something that would have been light and easy to carry probably is something like a stretcher. Now, in Matthew and Luke, each use a different word here from Mark. In, in the three accounts, we have three different words for bed. Matthew and Luke each use a different word that can mean cot or stretcher. Mark uses a word that more refers to like a mat. Think of like maybe like a camping mattress roll. But it was something that they would have been able to easily somehow attach to, to some ropes or something to lower him down on. Luke says that they were very specific. They, laid, they brought him down and lowered him before Jesus. They apparently did their work well enough to know where Jesus was in the room to bring him down at the right spot. And we see a little bit here, Jesus saw their faith. The next obvious question is, whose faith? Who's the there? Is this the faith of the four friends? In a cursory reading, we might think the reference to they was to the four friends, whose faith in Jesus to heal their friend was evident by their actions. But this causes a question then about Jesus forgiving the man's sins. How can the friend's faith be enough to cause Jesus to forgive the sins of the paralytic? Short answer, it doesn't. Forgiveness of sins from Christ is only through individual faith, individual repentance. No matter how strong our faith is, we can't get someone else saved. It is on an individual basis. So more than likely, I think the term their faith, the phrase their faith, means the faith of the five of them. The friends and the paralytic. Because the paralytic certainly would have had faith to come to Jesus. He would have had faith to be carried to a house so packed they couldn't get in. 
He would have had faith to be carried to the top of the roof and then lowered through a hole in the roof just to get to Jesus. If he didn't have faith that Jesus could heal him, why would he allow his friends to continue to do this, do these things? Now we see Jesus doesn't re re rebuke the group for interrupting his teaching or condemn them for their actions. It, it appears that he just simply acknowledges their faith. He says he saw their faith and then he turns to the paralytic. He turns and addresses the man lower down and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now the word son literally is child. Now this doesn't mean it was a child or a young person who was lowered down. Um, it may be that Jesus was just using a little bit more parental tone. Maybe he was a little bit younger than Jesus and he just used the word son. Maybe he was saying child. But why the addressing of sins and forgiveness? The man came to be healed of his paralysis. Jesus knew the man wanted physical healing, but Jesus saw the man's greater need. It is possible that the man's paralysis is the result of an injury sustained or, or even an infection of some, of some kind or a sickness that developed and possibly was the result of sinful behavior. Certainly in the ancient world, as we discussed a little bit with the leper last week, that there is the, the common theology, common thought of sin and physical suffering tend to go hand in hand. And we see that there are some tech, biblical texts that link those things together, but that's not always the case. Because we also see biblical texts linking physical healing with forgiveness. But we know through the book of Job that physical suffering isn't necessarily the result of sin. We don't always know God's plan or God's purpose for what we're going through. Jesus simply declared the man's sins were forgiven. The word forgiven here means to let go, to loose, to send away. The man received forgiveness through no work of his own. Jesus forgave the man through his grace. He gave forgiveness through his grace. And if you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, listen up. Maybe you've convinced yourself you're, you'll never be good enough. You don't have to be good enough. You won't be good enough. Salvation is given only through the grace of God, and God only asks for repentance and faith. Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. You can do it right 
now in your seat with a simple prayer of God, I am a sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died and was raised again for the forgiveness of sins, and there is nothing I can do to earn forgiveness. Please save me. Now, if the paralytic's entrance was dramatic, what Jesus just did was more so. Let's see what happens next, picking up in verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. In verses 6 to 11, we see the scribes question. The scribes question. Now, remember, we have a group of scribes and some Pharisees and teachers present here. They're listening to Jesus. This is the first mention of them in the book as players. They were mentioned in chapter 1 as a class, as a group, but there was no action around them. Remember back when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he said that he was, um, the people were amazed because he taught as one with authority, not as one of the scribes. But there was no action around them. Here, we have action around them and with them. They're players for the first time in the, in the account. Remember, we mentioned earlier that this group was present at the house while Jesus was teaching. And that we know through Luke's, Luke's uh, account that they came from all around Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. These weren't just local ones. These had come from all over Israel to hear Jesus in Capernaum. But why are they there? Maybe some of them had, had been hearing about Jesus and they were, were concerned and they were coming to start investigate. What is the, who is this man? What is he teaching? Maybe some were honestly curious. What is, what is he teaching? Do we need to really be serious about this? Maybe there's a mixture of both there. I think there's, there may have been a mixture of both there. Some may have been coming in earnest to understand. Some may have been skeptical and trying to maybe make sure he wasn't doing anything against against the traditions. Something we should note here, because Mark mentions it, is that some of them were sitting. I think that that seems to tell us that some of them were inside the house. They were present. Maybe some of the more important or prestigious members were given the honor of being allowed through the mass of people. Maybe they made them take the honor and make their way through the mass of people. But they were sitting in the presence of Jesus with front row access to Jesus' teaching. This also means, and it was as we see with the rest of verse six, verses 6 and 7, that they saw the whole process of the man being lowered through the roof, seeing the four men lower him, and hearing directly from Jesus what his response was. And because of seeing these things, they began to reason within themselves. 
Now, this word can be translated as question or think, as it is in some versions, um, and, it, and that is perf perfectly fine. The word means to consider, to ponder, to reason. This word, is, we see this word in verse 6 and twice in verse 8 in Jesus' response. The word here is to, 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 to reason these things within themselves. The, the idea is to have a deep internal dialogue or debate over a topic of oneself. They were having an internal thought, an internal argument in their own minds. We all do that, right? Or am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> they were having this discussion within their own thoughts. But what were they questioning in their thoughts, in their, in their hearts? Well, we see this in verse 7. Now, here in the New King James, we have it translated with two questions. Other versions translate this with the same intent, but a little bit differently in just structure. And present it with two questions and a statement. Um, generally, the, the, the structure comes about of... Uh, how, how we see these here. Basically, the, the way that is, what is being presented is, the question is, what is this man doing? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Some other versions translate it that way instead of making it two questions. Why is this man blaspheming? Who can forgive sins? The same in, it's the same intent, just structured a little bit differently. That second question, though, no matter what, seems to be a rhetorical one, demanding the answer, no one. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. So this brings up, well, what blasphemy did they see? In their eyes, Jesus of Nazareth was nothing more than an uneducated man, teaching without the authority of a qualified rabbi, the authority of a man, and was exercising authority that belonged only to God, assuming the right or the prerogative of God. And to presume such as much was to elevate oneself to the level of God or to claim to be equal with God, thus diminishing God. And, we see, and they see this as blasphemy. Now their thought, theology was correct. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But they missed who Jesus was. Paul in Philippians 2 exalts Christ by explaining Jesus' humility. Philippians 2, 5, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, made, brought himself humbly to earth to take the form of a bondservant and come in the likeness of men. The scribes had no faith in Jesus. They couldn't perceive of the Messiah coming in this humble fashion. Jesus sensed what they were thinking. Verse 8 says that he perceived in his spirit he was probably, I think he was probably prompted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allowed him to know what was going on. I mean, he may have even just could have sensed that a tension had entered the room and was dialed up a few degrees. MacArthur says that Jesus was demonstrating his deity 
here by reading the minds of the scribes. He was demonstrating omniscience, the fact that God is all-knowing. And if Jesus has the attribute of omniscience, which is an attribute of God, then Jesus is God. Jesus, knowing what they're thinking in their hearts, speaks directly to the scribes and addresses it. He doesn't argue. He doesn't attack the, the accusation of blasphemy. He affirms their basic theology about that God alone is able to forgive sins. He then gives them a question. What is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk? Well, the question about which is easier is kind of redundant because they're both beyond human ability. We can say these things, but we don't necessarily have the power to act on them. Now, really, the only sins I can forgive are any sins directed at me. But God is the one who deals directly with sins. So in this context, both of these things are beyond human ability. I have the ability to physically say, take up your bed and walk to a cripple, but I don't have the power to make that happen. There is no empirical way to prove the forgiveness of sins. But while telling a paralytic to get up and walk is something that can be tested and seen. Jesus then claims here his identity and authority. He says to the, to the scribes, so that you may know. He is making a point with them. Unlike the leper who was an act of compassion. And he said, don't tell anybody, just go to the priest, do what Moses commanded, and you can go on with your life. Here, he's making a point to the scribes so that you may know that the Son of Man, this is the first time in Mark with the title that this title is used. It appears once more in chapter 2, and then it won't show up again in Mark until chapter 8, and then it is used more frequently throughout the rest of the book. But this title was Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels. He always used it with messianic references to himself. The title itself is messianic. It comes from the vision recorded in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel recorded, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then he, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." So this is a messianic reference. It's a messianic reference about the kingdom, but Jesus is using this title. And it seems that by using this title, everyone understood, understood it messianically, but it allowed Jesus to, pre to present himself without bringing or conforming to that popular view, the popular understanding that the Messiah would be the king coming to overthrow the Romans. 
It also demonstrated some of his humility. The Son of Man comes, and he could reach more people. He says that so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power. The word power here means authority, and it would probably be better to be translated as authority here. It was understood that God had authority from heaven to forgive sins. Jesus here is declaring that he has the authority as God's representative on earth and has that authority on earth. And again, he claimed a right to exercise authoritatively a divine prerogative, a divine right. So he says to the scribes, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he stops and turns to the paralytic. He stops addressing the scribes and he speaks again to the man lying on the bed before him. And here we have a watershed moment. The scribes think him a blasphemer. But blasphemers can't read minds. Blasphemers can't truly forgive sins. Blasphemers don't have the authority to forgive sins or to heal bodies. God can. So healing the paralytic would prove his identity and claim his authority. MacArthur says, by performing this miracle, Jesus proved for all those to see that he was not a blasphemer. If he was, a blas- if he was not a blasphemer, then he was God as he claimed. And in dealing with the paralytic here, he doesn't say be healed. There's no reference of him laying a hand on the man or touching him as he did with the leper. He gave orders, he gave commands, he continued to exercise authority. He said, arise. He commanded him to pick up his bed. Pick up your bed and go home. He issued three consecutive orders to the man. Can you feel the mounting tension in the scene? What do you think? Should we cut it here and leave you at the cliffhanger and pick this up next week? All right, we'll, we'll keep going. I'm going to start in verse 11. I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. In verse 12, we see the results. The results. We have a victory for Jesus. He has verified and validated his authority and his identity. Again, we have immediate healing. The former paralytic's legs were at full strength, and he has command of use of them. There was no rehab for atrophied muscles. He had immediate strength and ability. And everyone present saw the now former paralytic stand up and walk. This time the crowd parted to let the man pass between them on his way out. The scribes saw him unable to deny the supernatural element of the miracle. 
Now it says, all were amazed and everyone was glorifying God. The word amazed here means to astound, to astonish, confound, confuse, to be out of one's senses. The word is used with the idea of being so amazed or so astonished by something that you nearly lose your mental composure. I think this is the idea of amazement that was near shock. How do I function now? Luke's account includes that they were filled with fear. The word fear being phobos, being uh, with use there of the idea of fear out of a reverence or respect, especially when one realizes he is exposed to the person, the presence, or the power of God. This reverential fear and respect. Luke also records that the people were saying how remarkable or strange the things they saw were. Now, does this amazement and, and, and glorifying of God include the scribes? Uh, probably, at some extent. I think most of them probably were more stuck in, in a shock of amazement of what happened. What, how do we think about this? What, what do we think is going on here? I don't know how many of them would have actually been glorifying God, though, to be fair, some may have. Luke 5 tells us in, in his account that even the paralytic was glorifying God on his way home, which I would expect. The crowd acknowledged the power of the healing, the physical miracle, but not the forgiveness of sins, not the spiritual healing the man experienced. And it may have been that most of the general, general crowd around couldn't hear all of what was being said. But word would have gotten through. Matthew's account says that now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. They marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. The scribes and Pharisees and most of the crowd seemed to still believe that Jesus was only a mere human. We see in this passage that Jesus declared his identity he declared the paralytic sins were forgiven, thus declaring himself the Son of Man, the Messiah, with the authority to forgive sins. He then validated his claim through the miracle of healing the paralytic. Jesus' miracles were to validate his claim of Messiahship and the authority that he had on earth and that he has on earth. Jesus not only has the authority to forgive sins, but he became the sacrifice on which the forgiveness was based. And the words that Jesus spoke to the paralytic some 2,000 years ago are the same words he tells anyone who comes to him in genuine faith. Your sins are forgiven. 
Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the truths we see in your word here. We thank you for the reminder of your grace and the power and authority that Christ has. We, we thank you that he came to bring forgiveness of sins, to be the sacrifice that we could never bring. Help us to think of this passage a little bit differently now, Father. Help us not just to be caught up in the work of the miracle and, and the strangeness of the account of the men lowering him through a roof, but that Jesus used the opportunity to declare himself as the Messiah, as God incarnate, God in human form, come as a bondservant in the likeness of man. So Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.